Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Eddie Watson from American Association of Colleges and Universities. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Eddie Watson from Association of American Colleges and Universities, AACNU. Eddie is the Chief Information Officer and Associate Vice President for Curricular and Pedagogical Innovation. Geez, you got a really long title there, Eddie. Um, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Eddie, you have so many accomplishments. I, I can't possibly really, you know, if I have to read them all, it will just take too long. But I wanted to just, I had a, I, I, I have a, there are a few things that you've done that I, I know are really notable for people who don't know you already. Um, first of all, at, at AAC, and you, you direct a number of institutes uh, beyond all the other things that you do as the CIO and the VP of, of, of so many things, I think, I feel like. Uh, you, there are a few institutes that you've done that I feel like have really great impact to, to, to educators all around, um, and uh, which I'd love to learn more about. And then you also are an author of two books, um, Teaching Naked Techniques, which is always a you know, great uh, conversation starter, uh, A Practical Guide to Designing Better Classes, uh, and Playing to Learn with Reacting to the Past, Research on High Impact and Active Learning Practices. Um, and you started the International Journal of ePortfolio, something we've got to talk about later, I think, uh, and, uh, and um, involved in so many projects, so many associations, organizations, you sit on boards, you do all these things. I, I really feel like that of all the people that I talk to, I, I'm just having a hard time trying to figure out where to start. So here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to ask you, um, what, what were you like as a kid? Man, um, should ask my mom. She, um, I was a pretty hyper kid. Um, I was a bit of a class clown. Um, pretty high energy kid, um, love to laugh. Uh, yes, that, that's probably a descriptor of me. I mean, I was a first generation college student, so I grew up in rural, um, Virginia. There are lots of photographs of me little being barefoot, playing with pigs and things like that. So it's, uh, what was I like as a kid? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it's hard to it's hard to note be outside of oneself and reflect back on what what you were. But I've I've heard a lot of stories about uh, what I was like. I remember one of our neighbors. I have I have a brother and a sister. My brother Joe and my sister Lynn. And I remember um, one of my neighbors said, "Well, you've got a son, and you've got a daughter, and you've got an Eddie." So that I was, uh, I guess, a bit unique and high energy and and out there a bit as a as a youth. I got to tell you that for the first 
I think you and my you and I met probably over a decade ago at this point, right? For sure. And um, when I first met you, though, I I was like, oh, he's like super together. Like uh, this, I'm not saying that you're not together now, but you were. I was like, he's like this really professional because you always were like in a panel or, or keynoting or something. You know, you were pretty serious and and very professional, very well done. Every you know, you're very knowledgeable. You you know what you're doing and well-spoken and um and it was really <laughs> after many years knowing you that i saw this class clown side of you <laughs> which you are now describing <laughs> well it's interesting like I, I i know that i have a game face so like i know if i'm getting yeah. ready to do a conference presentation I, I really think about quality and and saying meaningful things and so you've probably seen me with that game face on especially very early on where i was preparing to present or preparing to engage on a panel or the like and so i, I imagine i'm probably came off quite serious in those contexts yeah yeah i was i was uh um, and I, I, my, I've got to say, as I know you more uh, over the years, um, it's it's just uh, it's just really fabulous to see you know the the playful side of you, um, and I, I'm glad that everyone now gets to see this as well. Is that a good thing? Is this not going to cause any problems for you? Is it? <laughs> it's too late. I don't think so. It's I think it's late. probably a good thing so that I, I've. I've <laughs> People see me as being a little less um, uh, stoic and, um, you know, a little bit, with a little bit more flexibility and humor. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> a little bit more flexibility. Um, so, um, okay, so you talked a little bit about being a first-gen college attendee. Um, what was it? What, what was that like? And maybe I wanted to sort of at some point talk about your graduate school experience because it feels like that at tech virginia tech a lot of things happened i mean you you knew like there's like a cohort of people from virginia tech your you sort of your your era of people they all became like doing really important and interesting things so i wanted to sort of get us to the, to to that part of your life what how did it how do you get there well, I think, you know, I, I grew up in um, an area in Virginia that's kind of near Radford, Virginia, which is just a little bit west of Blacksburg, Virginia. And so whenever it came time to, you know, my, my parents were very encouraging of, of education, thought that I had potential and told me that I had three choices for college, that I could go to New River Community College or I could go to Radford University or I could go to Virginia Tech, you know? So, well, you know, what would be my preference? And um, Virginia Tech was my preference. I got in there. It was about maybe a 20 minute drive from where my parents live. So it was, um, it was definitely where I chose to go. And then I, I spent uh, many, many years there. I got my undergraduate degree in statistics and uh, learned that if I 
I was, I was a musician and a creative writer, and I saw that I was actually just one year away from actually having an English degree. So I ended up with double uh, undergraduate degrees in statistics and English, and then got my master's in English, and then got married and moved to Northern Virginia to teach for a couple of years. And then I re- returned to Virginia Tech to work and began work on my, my doctorate while I was there. So... I think if you're from Appalachia, you, place is very significant, and um, returning to Blacksburg or the the region made a lot of sense. I mean, it definitely feels like home to me. And um, I've actually just recently returned back to Blacksburg. Um, I was at the University of Georgia for. Um, five years, lived in Athens for seven years, but returned to um, Blacksburg. Um, you know, my parents are are getting on, and so being here is is um, I feel like I can be helpful to them by being close by. But it's also this notion of place. It's sort of a, like an Appalachian mindset, like you know, you you return to where you're from, or you never leave um, where you're from. So that that's probably what kept me at Virginia Tech um, year after year. Um, from 1987, when I started my undergraduate degree until 2012, whenever I left, I've spent a lot of time here from being a first semester freshman all the way through um, completing my doctorate. And, and tell us about that doctorate and um, who are some of these people that you work with and still working with together today? Yeah, so it was interesting. I, I sort of was a part-time student working on my doctorate. Um, it was sort of a uh, an employment benefit that tuition would be covered if you know if you're taking just a couple of courses a semester essentially. So that's what I did. Spent five years working on my doctorate while working full time within the learning technologies unit at Virginia Tech. So I worked with. Um, John Moore, which is a name, those of you that have been engaged with ePortfolios for a long time, you will remember John for sure. And uh, he and I are still in touch. We emailed maybe just uh, within the last month. And Tom Head was uh, sort of his co-conspirator. So I learned a lot from working with the, with those two. And Ed Schwartz was within that unit as well. So professionally, I was kind of doing the work of the, the doctorate in the real world while also engaging in coursework and a great set of students that I worked with. In fact, I emailing with one of my peers from that doctoral program, um, just a Earlier this morning, uh, Miriam Larson, I keep in touch with Chuck Hodges, who's um, a professor at Georgia Southern. Um, so this, yeah, there were definitely a lot of really good people. Um, I sort of was living two lives at that point, maybe three lives. I had two little kids at home and while also working full time and then being a, a, a sort of a part time doctoral student. So what was it about that program? Were there some magic sauce or what is some sort of philosophy or what is some some someone who influenced you all to be be that way well it's interesting there was there was someone that was a few years ahead of me who got their doctorate from virginia tech and then moved to the faculty and her, her name's barbara Lockie. and before she moved to the faculty she was also working under tom head and john moore so uh she became my major advisor my my um, chair of my doctoral committee, and so she very much knew the the experiences that 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 I was having, and so I think that that helped her be an excellent mentor to me as I matriculated to the end of my my uh, doctoral career. Mm-hmm. Was it and and 
and it's it's interesting because I see um I mean I see the book that you've you know that you you've you've written and um the work that you do now with the various institutes at ACNU and 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 the things that you you stand for it feels like that there's you know some sort of theme you know that go across them I, I don't know uh, maybe I'm reading a lot into it and maybe that's also part of your background and upbringing yeah maybe so I think that you know the the bottom line I guess theme or focus of my career really started whenever I was working on my master's degree and teaching my first college mm-hmm. class and I I spent that first semester, you know, teaching two sections of freshman English. I spent that first semester kind of organizing content. I was like, okay, so if I'm going to be telling a story within the class, okay, I'll do this first, and then this logically comes next, and then I'll cover this content. And then near the end of the semester, it kind of occurred to me, like as I felt, I felt pretty good about the organization that I'd come up with, and I was thinking about teaching in the spring semester. It kind of occurred to me that I kind of had my head down looking at my belly button the, the whole semester, and I wasn't necessarily thinking about what was happening with the students. And so that really, I, I remember during that, the winter break, that I spent a lot of time sort of like rethinking, like, shouldn't I really be focused on what, not so much on my content and organizing my content while that's important, but shouldn't I be thinking about from minute to minute, from class to class, what's happening with my students? What's happening in their head? You know, are they learning as they're going forward? And that kind of became sort of my central passion really over my career since 1995 is sort of like thinking about what do we know about learning Okay, so we we see these kinds of studies. How do we translate that into actual classroom practice? So if I know this about the recall effect, well, then how do I employ that in a meaningful way within a class that I'm teaching? And often that translation is very difficult. Obtuse um, Ed Psych findings. Well, how do you how do you take that to your classroom practice? And I guess sort of like turning my head toward students and then beginning as I worked more and more within the faculty development world, wanting to do the same thing Mm -hmm. for other faculty, help them kind of make that pivot and think about, you know, student learning more so than just the the pedagogical practice. Like what practices lead to student learning? How do you ensure students remember things, have their knowledge, skills, and abilities, not just at the end of the class for the final exam, but six months, six years beyond um, that particular course. I guess that's maybe the the thread is sort of a focus on students and student learning and student outcomes and ensuring students have those outcomes that that you're aspiring for them well beyond the life of just the course that you that you're with them. Right, right, and I think that that's very much so um, matches my memory of first meeting you and I, I'm pretty sure it was at some you know conference presentation or, or panel that you were part of um, and and I remember I mean this was obviously a lot of the e-portfolio work that you did probably this was when you were still at uh, Virginia Tech I'm, I'm sure of it yeah, it was about 2004 that I began working yeah. with the open source portfolio, part of that whole Sakai initiative around 2004 mm-hmm. that John Moore charged me with bringing that f- through a pilot with an eye towards scale, if it made mm-hmm. sense, if we found it to be efficacious with our piloters. Yeah. And 
I mean, in many ways, some of the the work that you led, you know, at Virginia Tech on ePortfolio has has along with several other schools who were doing similar things had really started this, you know, started to make ePortfolio a a a viable pursuit for many other schools as they see, you know, your early success and probably also some other places where you were like, oh, well, that didn't work, but they still learn from you, right? Um, but it did work at Virginia Tech, I feel. Um, yeah, it did. It had, it definitely had a life of its own and it kind of matched to the the current moment or the zeitgeist of higher education as we were moving beyond pilot and then thinking about what strategies we might use to take it to scale. And there were several things that were kind of at play at the moment we had. So Virginia Tech is in the southeastern region, of course, and SACS is the accreditor. And SACS requires a quality enhancement plan focused on student learning. So we knew that that was sort of like in the mix as we were um, moving our activities forward. There was also an increasing sort of call for accountability in higher education. So um, notions of accreditation and assessment were, were certainly increasing within that, that narrative. So there was an opportunity for us to kind of survey the landscape at our own institution. And there were logical connections to our work with ePortfolios to a QEP that was going to focus on first year experience. So there's a real opportunity there maybe to use um, ePortfolio to document students first year, but then also use what is collected during that first year for assessment purposes. So that was indeed the argument that we made. So we sort of had this larger accountability national narrative that was um, moving forward in, you know, 2006, 2007, and then that QEP, which was bringing the institution to actually engage with some of those um, accountability um, issues and how might you employ, um, how, how might you do assessment within this larger context, mm-hmm. especially within the context of accreditation requirements. So we, we I think we got a little bit lucky in that things were aligning for us, mm-hmm. but then we were also diligent. We were looking on at the landscape and trying to find where we might map. And so that did enable us to bring e-portfolios from sort of boutique within disciplines that you would anticipate would be interested in e-portfolio. We were able to move beyond that and actually then instantiate it as a, a cornerstone element of our quality enhancement plan for SACS. Mm-hmm. And let me asked you something that, you know, um, so as someone who's been doing this for a while, right, and, you know, QEP, you know, the, the, the quality enhancement plan and making, making your, your higher education experience that you provide for the students um, to be something measurable, something, you know, you want to make yourself accountable. How would you, now that you've seen that at Virginia Tech, you've done probably you've been involved probably at, at Georgia Tech. At, I'm sorry, University of Georgia, and now at AAC. And you, for the last many years, you also work with many other many schools and looking at it at a at a more sort of at least national, if not even somewhat global basis. Um, how do you think higher education has done in terms of making ourselves accountable for what we say we teach? 
Well, I think that, you know, assessment isn't necessarily easy. And, you know, there's sort of two general schools of thought, though that's sort of a false dichotomy. But, you know, one is that well, we, we employ standardized tests for assessment versus looking at authentic assessment. And authentic assessment is, you know, it, it requires, I think, more diligence. Um, there's, there's more work associated with it, you know, where you have to collect student work and then you have to go through processes of finding faculty or scores to engage in assessing that, that student work. And then the sort of like norming activities to sort of train faculty to do that work well. Of course, we have the Value Institute now at AACNU, which is, um, provides a mechanism where campuses could send student work to, to us. And we have trainers that we've, we've normed from across every institution type in higher ed to actually um, engage in that work. So there's, there's definitely been um, a moving of the needle. I mean, the work that Terry Rhodes and then mm-hmm. in collaboration with Kate McConnell and which continues with Kate McConnell now that Terry's retired around value, which started in, in the late uh, 2000 aughts, if you will, 2008, 2009, I think, were when the value rubrics were um, first um, brought forth. So we're, I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Accreditors are, you know, have requirements. And so campuses are figuring out the best strategy that makes sense for their culture, their mission, their institution type, all of those good things. So I think that we are, we're making progress. I think, um, that's, that's about what you would hope at this point, that, that institutions are figuring out strategies that make sense to them and then are employing them. And then the key piece is then when you do this assessment work, um, I think the assessment work is really just step one. That what happens next is, well, so you've done this mm-hmm. assessment work. What did you find? How might you then fold that back into changes in practice, changes in curriculum, that kind of work? So that that's where the fun, exciting stuff is, in my mind, is the assessment work for sure. But then that gives you data so that you can make data-driven decisions about changes in what you actually do in your classes. Right. And I, I, I must say that, um, you know, AACNU as an organization has really been so critical in doing this. The value value rubric um, or value as the project and then now the value institute. You want to just give us like for people who are listening to this who don't know what we're talking about, um, what's what's value like in, in a couple of sentences? So value is a project that's really looking at um, the assessment of learning in undergraduate education. And it maps to other projects that have um, taken place or continue to take place at AACNU. So 15 years ago, AACNU mapped out essential learning outcomes by working with um, institutions of higher learning, as well as following up with surveys of employers to confirm what's important regarding college learning. What would we want all college graduates to be able to do? So we identified what those learning outcomes were through this iterative process. And then the value project then uh, developed rubrics, again, working with um, faculty from all across higher education, all institution types, to then provide mechanisms for assessing student accomplishments associated with those essential learning outcomes. So you've got the outcomes, you've also got the rubrics that map to those outcomes. So if you are embracing critical thinking on your campus, 
and that's one of the outcomes you aspire for, say, general education within your institution. Well, we have a value rubric that you could then use to assess authentic student work um, as part of that process. We've actually been moving even further down that road with new projects. We have something called the value add tool and it's uh, the ad stands for assignment design and diagnostic tool. So that's what the ad tool is. And it's really to help faculty revise and create assignments that would help students produce work that aligns with the essential learning outcome and the elements that comprise critical thinking in this case of the, the value rubric. So if you're using the value rubric to assess student work, the value add tool for critical thinking would be an, an, an excellent addition to your portfolio. value add. Can yeah. I, can I That's, say that? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I must say that, I mean, it, you've, I mean, AAC and you in a, in terms of higher education, sort of the evolution of higher education has really, you know, moved the needle, like you said. I mean, it's, I feel like this work is never going to be done like 100% because there'll always sure. be the next thing to, you know, that we can do better, right? But it's definitely moving in the right direction in my mind. And, and, and I still remember having conversations with people before value, value was even a, you know, was whether, before they knew about it, um, was that they were trying to come up with these things and, and these are processes that could take an institution a year or two internally basically meeting and having committees and and then realize that they come to uh, the, the conclusions, you know, whatever that they come up with, no one likes because guess what? Someone will say, well, that I wasn't part of it, right? And I, I felt like I've been in some of those meetings myself and myself over the years. And, and, um, and then, and then uh, I think when value became became available and also became popular really that um, there were there were people who would say well even if I don't use it as is I will I can take it as a starting point but many institutions actually use it you know as is because it's good yeah that's the kind of the intention like you look at the value rubric and and some some feel a little overwhelmed by just mm -hmm. sort of the scope that's there. And the intention is that this is an, an open educational resource, that you would take this on your campus and then you would realize, you know what, within our context, 80% of this is right on target, but maybe this one isn't this extra sort of criteria within, say, critical thinking isn't relevant or needs to be tweaked. And so that's, that's part of what we encourage. Kate refers to it often as hacking the value rubrics. You know, you take it and then you revise it to make sense within your, your particular context. But certainly some do just take the value rubric as is and find it a, a good match for their institutional culture and context and, and run with it as is. But folks are certainly encouraged to revise as needed. And I really do like, I mean, just knowing a little bit about what you've done there. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Perhaps one of the things that I really have 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 liked and 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 think that and why I think so highly of AAC and you is because after you've done that, you have then spent the effort to then collect work back from the institutions to sort of um, look at it again and map map back to your your rubrics and see and see the work and see did it work right and is at a scale that's actually much larger than what people 
realize because you are you're really trying to um, you know like uh, on one level institutions like you like you were saying before may hack it may adapt may, may adapt it somehow and then they they are they're trying to measure their success and then trying to do what you said which is trying to redesign the assignments perhaps afterwards but they may not know exactly how to do that but AAC and you as an organization also has the value institute which which um, which which takes on that at a massive scale. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's you know really commendable. Well, I think there's a there's a few sort of statistics regarding the value rubrics, and I, I don't know the numbers as of this moment, but I know that we have exceeded over six hundred thousand downloads of the value rubrics. So there's some sense of them being fairly pervasive across higher education, you know, being free resources. They they may some may just use them to help think through some aspect of say a given assignment, and some are using them all the way through like gen ed assessment. So we know that that they're having a bit of uh, influence in our value institute, and we have a little bit of um, dissonance regarding language within AACNU at the moment, and we're actually going to rebrand the value institute in the coming weeks because we have other institutes like our Institute on General Education and Assessment that is, a, is a, an institute that a team from a campus would come and work on, say, a plan, an action plan to bring about reform within uh, gen ed work, maybe to change assessment practices. So we've got those institutes. We have multiple institutes where it's really about campus teams coming together to plan. The Value Institute isn't an institute like that. The Value Institute is really a mechanism where a campus looking to do assessment work, they can send in assignments to us. And we've been training now for several years um, scorers from all institution types to actually look at student work and then um, score it. And then we provide reports back to campuses. So what we're really seeing ourselves as we see us ourselves as partners in some of the assessment work. So really it kind of lowers some of the, the hurdles or, or eases some of the barriers to doing good assessment work on campuses. And so you provide us with the assignments, we provide you back with a report, and then you're basically then put in the position of, okay, so now we have a report, what might we do differently? And it might be there's an opportunity, say, to revise a critical thinking assignment mm -hmm. um, within a set of courses. Well, then we have tools to assist with that as well. But but we give you a report that enables you to then make some decisions. So a really sort of high level report with with clarity regarding what we found in your students' work. And then it's up to you to decide what the next steps are. And I think that's exactly what is so exciting about what you're doing there. Because in my mind, without that, it's um, it's easy for you know your the the community whom you work with every day and you are having lunch with all the time and that you you meet with you know every every month at faculty meeting to start to just agree with each other without being critical without being rigorous without you know sort of in a way. Um, letting the, the that that closeness um, 
blind you from the actual accountability piece. And I think the ability to, um, for institutions to say, hey, you know what, I'd like to get someone outside who is not going to look at this student's work because of their relationship with the student is because they have been trained very critically to look at something that says, does this, you know, look like something that we would consider critical thinking, right? And, 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 and being able to provide that feedback um, allows the institution to be honest um, about where they are. And I think, you know, like, it's a hard thing to do, but, but it's a necessary thing because if they don't do it, then you just get more and more sort of feel like working in a bubble. Right. Yeah. And so the reviews are done. The, all of the work is blind. So, you know, mm-hmm. our reviewers don't know which institutions they're from. Mm-hmm. And the report really requires the context of the campus. So if, if student work is drawn, say, from a second semester freshman level course, you wouldn't necessarily expect the students to be, you know, performing at, at, at a gangbuster level, you know, on your own campus, it might make sense that you would expect them to maybe, mm-hmm. you know, be at a mid-level or maybe even a little bit lower just because it's a freshman level course. If it, if the student work was taken from a, a senior capstone course, then you, you would have different aspirations. So, you know, it's not as though when you, when you, when you look at the student, um, the report that comes back regarding student work, it's really about the context and what the expectations were and, and what you would hope for or aspire for your students. It could be that you get back a report and like they're really performing much higher than you expected them to be performing at the freshman level. So maybe there's right. just, you know, minor tweaks that you might consider. However, you may find that at that senior capstone course, students weren't performing as well as you had hoped as they were about to enter the real world. <laughs> if they've, they've gone worse over the last three years, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> that, that definitely would not be good. But so I think it's really about, you know, the scores themselves don't tell the story. It's like the yeah. scores, you know, the report returns to the campus and then given their context and their aspirations. Um, that, they can take, take yeah. it and do something with it. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. This concludes part one of our conversation with Eddie Watson from American Association of Colleges and Universities. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius. Thanks for listening.